Welcome to the Senya Happy Hour, where you get one hour of learning in less than 30 minutes. Hi, listeners. This is Lori Boll, your host of the Senya Happy Hour podcast. Today, I speak with my good friend, Phil Bowman. Phil's a high school learning support teacher at International School, Bangkok. He's a long-term Senya Thailand board member and founder of the Mario Framework, which is a professional learning resource for teachers and schools. Today, Phil talks with us about how he uses the design thinking model in his high school learning support classroom. To be very honest, this is pretty new for me, as I'm quite a novice with design thinking. Phil and I laughed throughout this podcast, as I sometimes obviously struggled with this learning. Thank heavens for editing, growth mindset, and a good sense of humor. So get ready to learn more about the design thinking process, which starts with empathy and learn how one educator uses it to improve his teaching and his students' learning. And now, on to the show. Hey, Phil, and welcome to another Senya Happy Hour. Hey, Lori. Happy to be here. Our topic today is design thinking, so you're the expert, so I thought we'd start with the obvious. What is design thinking, and how are you using it? Okay, I don't know if I'm actually an expert in design thinking, but I do use it a lot. And for me, I would say design thinking is intentionally making something better. I think there's a lot of definitions out there, but that's what I would boil it down to. How am I using it? I'm using it all the time in my class, which I guess is why we're talking now. Yeah, I was curious because when the topic came up of design thinking today, I was thinking, yeah, I've used this in an English class that I've taught in. I've, I've used it in other classrooms that I've co-taught in, but how would somebody use it in a learning support classroom? So I'm excited to hear what you have to say today. Cool, cool. Um, and, and, and I think one of the things that's so exciting about it is it allows you to really experiment with your classroom and your design and then reiterate and constantly improve what you're doing with the students in an intentional way. Okay, cool. So how often do you use the design thinking process in your classroom? Okay, well, um, I would say I use it in many different ways at different times. I do it daily. I do it weekly, I do it monthly, and I do at particular times throughout the semester and year, depending on what I'm doing. Cool. So do you subscribe to a particular design cycle or design thinking process? Well, no. (laughs) Actually, there's a lot of good ones out there. So if you're just starting into design thinking or the design cycle, I would really encourage you to go online and look up some examples. Now, a really great example is the IB design cycle. Now, I prefer the term design thinking because I don't like to think of it as a linear path. I like to see it as multi-entry, multi-exit. So design thinking aligns a little bit more with that. However, I don't subscribe to one model. I've basically created my own, which I kind of call a playbook um, because it kind of makes more sense for me. And that's what I follow. Okay, makes sense. So what I know about the design thinking model is that it starts with empathy. So start us off. Explain how you would use empathy 
to work with your students in the classroom and go on from there using the design thinking process. Absolutely. Empathy is such a key component of the design thinking process. So that empathy is really embedded deeply in my course design as one-to-one -one instruction is a key part of my classes. And those one-to-one -one conversations that I'm consistently having with students allows me to ask questions that get at ways to improve the classroom. Um, so that's kind of built into my classroom by design. I know that not everyone has one-to-one instruction as a center, but that makes it easier. If you don't have one-to-one -one, uh, instruction at the center, which I'd highly recommend, um, I would say that means you need to intentionally create spaces for those interviews. Um, and there's additional ways that we're building empathy um, and that we're, we're looking at finding out what they're thinking. That could be daily check-ins. I do a check out at, uh, not check-ins, you can do check-ins, you can do check-outs, you can check all the time. But the final thoughts at the end of the day is one to ten, two minutes, and that's a chance for students to highlight a question or area that's really important to them personally and share that with you. So what's interesting is not just their answer, but which question they choose. For example, the questions could be something like, what did you learn today? What are you really proud of? What is something you wanted to share with me today but didn't get a chance to share? Um, so what they choose is just as important as how they answer it, and that can help guide how we structure our class. I see. Okay. So take me back to the beginning. You walk into the classroom. What, what do you guys do? Yeah. In our class, we start with an opener where there's a box and there's a bunch of questions. We pull out a question and everyone has a chance to answer that question however they see fit. So it is another form of empathy building where each person's listening to each other's answers and gaining insight into how each other thinks. So Phil, can you give us an overview of the design process that you use? Absolutely. I, I think that helps to understand what this looks like is if we can see all the different components. So I talked Great. earlier about the daily, weekly, monthly, and different particular points where the design cycle comes into play. So the daily pieces are these. We already talked about final thoughts protocol at the end of the, the class. That's one part. Another part is a rolling document that I keep on my side that identifies all problems, possible ideas, solutions for future iterations, and suggestions for areas of research for me later. That document I keep with me throughout the semester. And then at the end of the semester, I reflect and review on it and find ways to improve the class. The document typically is about 10 pages long by the end of the semester. So there's a lot of good stuff in there if we're updating it daily. On a weekly basis, I take those final thoughts and I review them. And I, I follow up with students on that final thoughts protocol. Also in that final thoughts protocol, there's a quantitative measurement where one through 10, the students identify how much learning they got from that classroom. So they're able to identify for you what the strongest lessons were and what the weakest lessons were. So this is quite useful when we analyze what we've done previously and keep those strong lessons and maybe tweak or even remove those weaker ones. 
on a monthly basis, I'm having at least one-to-one -one conference with students where I'm actually asking them, how can they help me improve our setup? So it's a very direct question. I'm going, hey, what do you like about intensive studies? What do you think we could do to further improve it? And those conversations are a little different than end of the semester surveys because they're a little more freer to talk about it. So I, I feel that I get different feedback than I typically get at the end of the semester, which is another really important way for us to gather feedback for the design cycle. So that's one of those points. Other points in time um, that we're, we're using the design cycle is when we have a mid-semester review and students review their progress on the course so far and they share a video, presentation, essay, whatever they wanna share that helps explain and share their learning. I like to do this mid-semester and end of the semester and that gives me some insights into what's going well and what could be tweaked. Most importantly, actually, well, there's two that I believe are most important. The one is at the end after we've done the feedback and, and everything, we have to reserve time to reflect and synthesize on what we found. And this is a step I think a lot of people miss. They gather the data, but they don't actually intentionally allocate time to problem solve and to reiterate their course design. And finally, the next semester, I explicitly share with my students how the course changed. I let them see that this is not the course they had last semester, this one is improved, and it's improved in these ways, and it's because you had a voice in the process. Cool, so this might be putting you on the spot a little bit too much, but could you give an example of one improvement you made based on student feedback? Oh, well, there's a lot, so it's not on the spot, it's just which one do I choose? Um, probably the most important improvement that I've had overall has been the inclusion of one-to-one -one sessions and one-to-one -one instruction um, and actually growing that as the feedback got louder and more clear as to how significant this was in the students learning. Um, actually that is what led to creating the Mario framework was identifying how important these one-to-one -one learning sessions are. Okay, uh, do you think it's possible that you could have reached that same result without this design thinking process in place? Absolutely not, no way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Good to not, know. Not possible. <laughs> <laughs> and you just mentioned the Mario framework, so tell me a little bit about that, please. Right, so in a nutshell, a very, very tiny nutshell, <laughs> it's a framework that allows teachers to create support structures that are measured, ambitious, research-based, and structured around one-to-one -one learning. That's what it is in a nutshell. That's quite a nutshell, and it sounds very like a very big nut, actually. That <laughs> <laughs> it is. Okay, so we will um, do a podcast later, hopefully, on on the Mario framework awesome. and learn more okay. about it. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Which part of the design thinking process do you think is the most challenging to implement for you? Um, oh, so for me. Um, it would probably be the final thoughts protocol at the end of class, even though it only takes one to two minutes. Um, I have two things that make this more challenging for me. Um, 
and they both stem from uh, ADHD. <laughs> so, so one is I sometimes forget. I'll be really <laughs> honest with you. I'm like, oh, because I guess it's that last thing, and I, I, I sometimes um, forget. Fortunately, not enough for it to make an impact in the overall um, scheme of things. And the second thing is. Uh, Time is quite abstract for me sometimes. I have to use lots of timers to help assist me. And if I don't set that up, then it's not going to happen. Hmm. Um, now, I, I will say, I think for a lot of people um, and myself early on in the process, it was actually building in the time to reflect and synthesize after all this data had been collected. So it sounds like this whole process is, is based on inquiry. Yes, and, absolutely. And some teachers are comfortable with that, confident with it. Others, it's new or maybe a little frightening, uh, intimidating. What would you say to teachers that are on the fence about incorporating it into their routine? I promise. I, I, I absolute promise it will make your class better and it will enrich you professionally. I completely get that it's also probably scary if this is not in your wheelhouse. So I think there are things you can do, such as maybe setting some structures in place, maybe um, creating some forms and uh, actual assignments that build this into place um, if, if it is not initially comfortable for you. So basically, you're, you're letting go of some of that control in your classroom. Yeah, you and are. And you're listening. If you're doing it right, you are absolutely giving up some of that control because you're listening to what they say and you're adjusting your classroom based on what they say. Now, I don't cave into everything if they, if they want something that's just going to help them in the short term and not the long term. So there is a balance in me being identify what are the best things to take on board and what are the things that are actually going to be counterproductive for the students, but more fun. <laughs> Okay. So now we want to take it on. We want to use this model in our classroom, this process in our classroom. What suggestions do you have for us to do that? Yep. I would say planning is really going to be the key here. Um, if you want to do this, identify those key moments for you in the process. When are, what, what are you going to do to collect that data? And be intentional about that. And then when are you going to schedule time to actually reflect on and review that feedback and, and synthesize? I, I, again, I feel like it's really challenging sometimes as teachers because we're looking at that evaluation um, part happening after almost the semester's ended. Mm -hmm. One thing I've done to help me is... I no longer collect my end of semester feedback at the end of the semester. I now collect it two weeks before the end of the semester so that I'm building in reflection time while the school semester is still in and my brain hasn't kind of gone into vacation mode. So I'm still on it. This also allows for follow-up with the students. So if you have a few particularly unclear, ambiguous areas where you're not quite sure where to proceed, you can do follow-up interviews with students and say, hey, actually, I'm looking at this for next semester. What are your thoughts? So that's a useful little piece there as well. Okay, Phil. So 
I know why you're using it as a learning support teacher now. How did you get involved with this in the first place? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and and it's, it, it takes us down a little rabbit hole, but, but I think it's useful. Um, I got into this because of growth mindset, actually. So, you know, at the end of the day, when I got into Carol Dweck's work, you know, long ago, about a decade ago, you know, that idea of continuously failing forward and embracing failure as a way to be more successful, I, I, I kind of died, dove a bit into that and I looked into the research behind it and what cut popping up was design thinking because design thinking embraces that ethos of let's fail forward and makes it more concrete for us. It actually gives us some steps and some ways to fail forward um, and it's not as abstract a term. I'm a big believer in taking these theories out there and making them real, you know, not some just kind of vague thing that we're like, oh, I want to do that. Well, how can I do that? Cool. So what did you do first? What did I do first after I, I dipped into design thinking? Yeah. or? Yeah. What did you do in your class? I read a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot. And you know, it's funny because a, a big part of the design thinking process is research. And, you know, it, it's not some linear path. That research happens all the time. You know, I'm still doing research uh, on both this and other things, um, but you never stop. That's an ongoing step. Also, the empathy piece. You're not going to stop being empathetic with the students, right? You're going to do that all the time in the background. However, early on in the process, that is one of the keys. You're going to research, research, research. You're going to have empathy with your students. Fortunately, we're already talking with our students and we have that empathetic component. But mm -hmm. what might be new, if you're new to design thinking, is really diving into that research in a significant way. Um, I, actually, um, there is a great resource out there. Um, oh, do tell. Yeah, we'll yes, put it in yes. our show notes. So Okay. Fantastic. It is a huge tool. It's called Design Thinking for Educators. So okay. pretty, pretty straightforward. Design mm -hmm. Thinking for Educators. It's a website and it, it, it actually is more like a toolkit. You could spend 20 plus hours just playing around with all the material there. It is phenomenal. Okay. Well, I can't promise you I'm going to spend those 20 hours doing <laughs> You can do one hour and still get a lot. Okay, you, good. <laughs> it, it, is, it is very efficiently laid out, and you can get the golden nuggets easily. Cool, cool. All right, so tell me how you failed forward. Well, so that means I made as many experiments as I could. I actually intentionally tried new things that I didn't know if they'd work or not. Now, so that's it's okay a prototype to... phase, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Got oh, it. You, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, yes, it's the prototype phase, and it's okay to do this because there's other components in my classes that are already well-proven. So it's not like I'm experimenting with everything in the course. I'm just picking, and I always pick at least one experiment every semester. So that's my goal is to always try one experiment. Sometimes it works great. Sometimes it's okay and needs to be tweaked. And sometimes it, it's a failed experiment, but I learned some things about 
other things that I'm going to do differently. So it's never, it's never not productive. Hmm. It's always productive. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Phil, this happy hour is about over. So give us some final thoughts on design thinking before you leave today. I will give you just two. It works. Just do it. That is a great way to end. Thank you so much, Phil Bowman, for joining us today. Thanks for stopping in to our Senya Happy Hour. Don't forget to head over to senyainternational.org slash podcasts and check out our show notes from our discussion today. We at Senya hope you are enjoying these podcasts. There is so much to explore and we're at the very beginning, so feel free to drop us a note and let us know what you'd like to hear more about during your next Senya Happy Hour. Until then, cheers!